You are listening to Church at the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as services, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchattheoaks.com. you got a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3. If you want to join me there, it'd be great. Um, man, I've loved our time this morning already, and uh, thankful for Blake and Christine leading us through that time of Advent. Like, um, before we do anything else, though, I've got kids people waving at me in the back. So if you're, a grade school, if you're a grade school kid and you're still in the room and you want to go to your own time of worship, take off. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be awesome also, though, but I get it. We don't, you know. There's no snacks here. Uh, anyway, so um, as I was thinking about this this morning, uh, thinking about this 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 aspect of, of love, like God's love and the way that we're called to walk in that and the way that's supposed to inform our days and order our actions, and it's supposed to be this relief and this rest and the goodness and the grace and this is the love of God. Now, I know a lot of you in the room, and I, I know that probably for a lot of you, if you and I were to go sit down and have a cup of coffee, which I just brought with me up here today because I felt like I should, um, if you and I were going to go sit down and, and you were to, to describe the love of God to me, a lot of you could do a good job with that. You may, you may even have some statements that would come to your mind almost instantly, like God is love, like God loves us unconditionally, like he's shown his love for us in sending his son and, and then his son dying on the cross for us. All that is, ex, is ex, example, is demonstration of this endless, boundless, unconditional love that God has for us. But then when it comes to us actually like resting in that and acting like it, sometimes we have this this thing of going back to some old habits, some of those pre before Jesus kind of habits, right? Where we kind of lean away from the love of God and back into ourselves a little bit. And so I I don't know about you, but for me, old habits die hard. Um, All of them, all of my old uh, habits die hard. Like there's there's things I've been doing since um, since high school that I still haven't been able to like really actually shake. And I may make some progress for a little bit, and then there's this gravity always dragging me back into it. Like my entire life, I've been I've been a night owl. I'm a, like anybody a night owl in the room, like, like 1 a.m. is your preferred go to bedtime. All the people in the back. All right, cool. And all you like morning people are up front. And you're like, let's get it. You know, <laughs> that's, that's why the, more, the evening people are in the back. Like if I just had my own, like if, if my wife and kids leave town, this is what happens. I'm going to go to sleep about one o'clock in the morning and I'm going to wake up about nine and I'm going to feel awesome. However, my wife and kids never leave town. So that means I never do that. Like I always have this weird sleep schedule that feels foreign to me. And every day of my life, I do that. So this past week, um, I've had, really the past two weeks, I've been talking to my brother-in-law and my buddy Adam, who's in town and he's part of Oaks. And they've been after me about trying to get up early and start working out. I'm, a, like, I'm an adult man now. I think that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get up early and go work out. It's not my thing, all right? Like early is not my, that's not my zone, all right? And so they, they were after me about it and push, push, you know, peer pressured me into it. And I caved because that's what you do. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to wake up at five every day this past week. I'm going to, and they, then they invited, he, I was supposed to go to this thing called F3. This is a bunch of grown men running around a parking lot at 530 in the morning. That's what F3 is, all right? And it's supposed to be a workout. It's like 30 grown men running around a parking lot, like a middle school parking lot, 530 in the morning. And they're like, hey, we're going to do this. It's going to be incredible. And so Tuesday, my alarm goes off at like 5, and uh, I get out of bed and do the thing. I eat a banana because 
that seems healthy, you know? And I walk out my door, go over to the middle school parking lot, and there's all these like adult guys there, and they're all like stretching, and I'm like, okay, all right, I'll get some stretches, we'll do that. And then they do this workout, we run around the parking lot and everything, and afterwards, man, I got some texts from some guys, like, wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that just a great workout? And the whole time, everything inside of me was like, no. This was the worst thing I've done in recent memory. I hate this. I hate this a lot, you know? And then like that afternoon, Adam texts me. He's like, all right, man, we're going again Thursday. And I was like, no, I I think I'm just not going to do that. And if I die 15 years earlier, it's just going to be okay. Like, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't know what to do about it. It's not going to happen. I don't have that zone yet. I just, there's this, there's a gravity in me that draws me back into some old habits, my old patterns, my old stuff. And so when I came to start thinking about this love of God that he has for us, I've come to know that. Like, I'm, I'm a believer. I've trusted my life and my eternity to the love of God. Like, I, I get it. I've been, I, I can explain it to you. I've talked about it. Then I, I thought about my life. And what I noticed in myself was this gravity that was always pulling me back towards proving it. Now, always, always a gravity pulling me back towards doing some things to see if God, like, if God would be helpful, if, if God would be happy with me. Like, there, even if it's not something I would cognitively explain, if it's something that, not that I'm, I'm consciously doing, there's some behaviors in me that show me that I'm still attached. There's, there's, there's something in me that, that, that wants to, almost sinfully wants to acknowledge God's love, but live like it's still on me. I don't know if any of you live like that, but I think a lot of us do. And so this morning, we're going to look at the story of a guy who is in that tension, trying to figure this thing out. And he encounters Jesus, and Jesus begins to speak into him the, the things that I need spoken into me over and over and over again. It's a passage that a lot of you are going to be familiar with. But it's a place that a lot of us are familiar with too. Of coming back in and saying, I need to be reminded of the love that he has for me and the reality of getting to walk in that. So if you're in, you got a copy of God's word, we're in John chapter three. Beginning in verse one, it's a story of Nicodemus. It says this, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And he was a, a ruler of, of the Jews, all right? And so Nicodemus, he's, he's a Pharisee. That's, that's a group of people who are very, very serious about their religion, about their behaviors and their rules and doing all the right things. And they were very, very churchy, all right? They had all the, all the outside adornments. They like looked like they were getting it all done. They were like the, the good people, the righteous looking people, all right? They didn't, they didn't do the things that the bad people did. Like they were, they were, they had it all together and they're very, very serious about this. Took it really seriously. And so he's, this guy is one of the key teachers of the nation of Israel. And so he's, he's like one of the lead, the lead teachers, teaching people what it means to follow God. And the way that he sees to follow God is through following the rules and, and making yourself do a better job and pressing in a little bit harder and like disciplining yourself to stop sinning and so that God would be happy with you. This guy that counters Jesus, he walks up, says this man came to Jesus by night in verse two and, and he says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you or a teacher come from God, for, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so he said, when, when did he come? He said he came to him by night. Well, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but like when I, when I think about that, why would this guy be coming to Jesus by night? Like these, Jesus is out, he's doing ministry, he's in the public, and it's always during the day, all right? And so if he's coming during night, there aren't street lamps, okay? There's not like in, in, inside lighting. He's coming under the cover of darkness to come have a conversation with this one who is teaching something differently. That's why he calls him rabbi. So Jesus, like, he, he's, he's using this, um, this address of, of a rabbi that means a teacher. It's a kind and respectful way. Like, Nicodemus, like, he, he was a rabbi. 
like, like a formal, like respected rabbi in the nation. And he's coming to this other guy and saying, calling him rabbi is a, is a sign of respect. And so he's coming by night. There's a little bit of worry in him. He doesn't want people to see. And he wants to just kind of sneak in the back door and get to have a conversation with Jesus and ask him some questions about what he's been teaching. I think has to be the only reason that Nicodemus would have come if he'd heard something inside of Jesus's teaching that, that drew him. There was something in there that, that Nicodemus's heart kind of, kind of leapt at. I think that's one of the things that, that, that brings people like us to places like this, to get to be in a church, to get to hear some of the, the gospel, get to hear this truth of Jesus. It's because when we hear about this God that, that loves us perfectly, that isn't, isn't trying to get us to like be better, but has done something for us, has laid his life down for there's something in us that leaps at that. Even if you're, a, if you're not a Christian in the room yet, like you haven't trusted your life for this, I get it. I remember what that was like. And that there's something in me, though, I think that every single one of us, when we hear the goodness and the grace and the love of God, like something in us at least wants that to be true. So I don't know exactly where Nicodemus stood with the Lord, right? But he's walking in a lot of legalism and a lot of behavior and a lot of self-righteousness. And he's coming to Jesus and he's basically getting in front of him and saying, there's something to you, man. Because see, I don't think you, can, you can't be doing all the stuff you've been doing unless God was with you. So I just want to talk about that. I want to figure it out. I want to, I, want to, I want to know. And if you came in this morning like that, then that's a beautiful place to be. Jesus hears him, right? And responds with, uh, with a kindness. Nicodemus addressed him with a kind and respectful tone. But Jesus addresses him with a little bit less respectful, but far more kind response. This is what Jesus says. He doesn't, doesn't acknowledge him. There's no small talk. He just immediately starts going. Jesus answered him in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus walks up and he's like, hey, Rabbi, how you doing? Like, I just, I, I want to have a conversation. You know, and Jesus is like, yeah, unless you're born again, you, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. There's going to be a, a kind of a shock there. That's, there's an abrasiveness there. Like there's something that because like Nicodemus has no idea what that means to be born again. And he says, if, unless you've been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, which instantly tells Nicodemus that this guy, Jesus, is telling him that you are not going to see the kingdom of God. It's instantly offensive. The gospel is offensive. And so Jesus doesn't kind of lead in in a nice little, like, fun little story or something. He just goes straight at it, man. Unless something changes in your life, you're not, you're not going to see the kingdom. And here's why I say that's a kindness, because it's, I think it's a kindness. It's not a southern kindness. We're all, we're all very sweet to each other, right? Like, if you're, if you're from the south, like, you, you won't cross anybody. You've got to bless your heart on everything, right? And if you're from other parts of the country, you're a little more direct. But down here, like, this is not a kindness. That's rude, right? What Jesus is doing is a kindness. He's saying, listen, your, your religious acts, you having it all together, you following all these rules isn't helping and in fact, if anything, it's distancing you from the Father because you're proud of your own righteousness, how good you are, how religious you are, and it's not falling on him and his grace. And I'm just telling you, that ain't how, that ain't how it works. Now, why is that a kindness? Why is it a kindness to confront somebody like that and say, listen, unless something changes in your life, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to know him. Why is that a kindness? Because this kind and sincere man had built his faith on a broken foundation. He, he, he was trusting in his ability to be righteous. When in truth, no one is right. I'm not righteous. I got my stuff. You got your stuff. We ain't righteous. And this guy's not either. And so Jesus is taking apart the lies that he had trusted in and saying, listen, if you're trying to trust in your righteousness, I'm telling you, it's not enough. Unless something changes in your life, you're not going to know God. So Jesus is taking apart this foundation so that something better, something better can be introduced 
to him. If that hasn't happened in your life, that foundation of your self-righteousness has been ripped out from under you, it is a kindness for somebody to come and tell you, like, you are not perfect, you are sinful and broken, and you are in need of rescue. It hurts your heart to hear it, but it's a kindness. What's unkind is for somebody to tell you that you've got it all together, you, you're doing a good job, like in your own morality and in your own efforts, you're doing good enough, and surely God's going to be happy with you because you're a nice and good person. Nicodemus was a nice and good person, stood before Jesus, and he said, I'm sorry, it's not enough. There's something better, though. So Jesus continues. Nicodemus asks, he says, hey, look, how can, how can somebody be, be born when he's old? How, how can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is like, No. Like that's, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus is like flipping Nicodemus's theology upside down. Like his whole perspective on how this entire relationship with God thing is, is completely flipped upside down. And Nicodemus is clearly just spinning. Nicodemus thought that entering God's kingdom was all about his physical birth. He was, he was Jewish. He was already in the family of God. I was born into this. And he's, he's, he's a Pharisee. Like he's in a group of people that are even like that, the most religious in his in his like community, right? I talk to people sometimes that tell me the same thing. I'm like, hey, so tell me how you became a Christian. When did you trust Christ as your savior? How did this transpire for you? And I said, well, I, honestly, I was kind of born into it. Nicodemus was born into it. And so when I talk to people today and they say, I was, I was born into it. I've kind of always heard about it and I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing it. That throws up flags for me because People like Nicodemus were born into it and they kind of showed up and learned some behaviors and did the right things and went through all the right motions way better than you're going through them. And Jesus shows up and says, it's not about that birth. It's not what you were born into. It's being born again. Jesus is trying to tell him that, that that's, it, that's not it. That's not, that's not enough. He's trying to tell, tell him that every single one of us is automatically separated from God by our sin. And no matter how you're born or what you're born into and what behaviors you've got, it's not enough to fix it. Nicodemus thinks he's talking about physical birth. He's just not. So if it's not about physical birth, like what, what is it? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a spiritual birth, a rebirth, a new life, separate from the one that you live based off all of your prereqs. And a different one based on him. So Jesus answers, he says, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Fine, you're born, congratulations. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He said, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. What he's saying is the spirit of God makes somebody alive. The Spirit of God makes somebody alive. That, but before, that, before that point, before somebody comes to trust Christ, trust in the Lord, be reconciled to Christ, the Spirit of God comes in them. Before that, they aren't alive. They're walking in darkness. They spiritually, that, that, that we're dead. Spiritually, we're separated from the Lord. And this new birth happens where this person trusts Christ as their Savior, is given the Spirit, and this, this transformation happens, and it's a transformation from the inside out. It's not a transformation that happens on the outside in. It's a transformation that the spirit of God comes inside a person who's trusted Christ in their spirit, right? Like changes them, changes their hearts, reconciles us to God. And so then our behaviors, our outside stuff starts to change because of what's happened on the inside. This is not a thing that we can fix with outside in. This isn't a thing that we can do. We can handle by our behaviors and our rule following and our self-righteousness. If we can just take care of all of our own stuff, we can clean ourselves up and make ourselves look good enough, be good enough people, stop doing enough bad things, start doing enough good things, then all of a sudden that's going to count inwardly. He's saying that's not the way this is going to work. 
It's a total transformation from the inside out. That's how God described it through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, this is what God says. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. I'll remove that old heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, listen, this isn't something you do. You don't change your heart. You don't cause yourself to, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's like, no, no, you don't, you, on your own, you can't do this. You're just not capable of it. Like, I, I know my little kids, I know what they're capable of, and I know what they're not capable of. And my heavenly father looks at me and says, Britton, you're not capable of doing this, man. You're just, you don't have enough in you. I know you. I know that you're not able to do this on your own. So what you need is not to try harder. What you need is for me to change your heart take out that old heart of stone and all of its self-righteousness and all of its pride and all of its sin and give you, give you a new heart. So Nicodemus and the Pharisees, man, they'd studied the Old Testament, but they, they'd missed what God had said. They, they picked up on all the rule parts and all the behaviors and they'd, they'd, they'd missed the work of God in their lives. God's just repeatedly said all across the Old Testament, like external laws were never going to be enough. That's Psalm 51. Verse 16, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So what a person needed was an internal transformation. And Nicodemus, verse 9, just goes, I don't get it. Before, if, if, you were, if you came to Christ late enough that you remember this point, like, do you remember the point when you were thinking about the gospel and kind of walking through this and there was, there was moments when people would say some things and try to explain how all this happens and you're just like, I don't, I don't get it, right? I sat down with somebody the other day and just sitting in Monarch and the very first table right there on the left and you come in the door and I, I just, I sat down and somebody had checked a box on the card and said, hey, I want to meet with a staff member. And so we're sitting down and I don't even know who I'm meeting with and they walk in and I don't know them. And so somebody comes over, uh, brand new to me, we sit down and start talking and they're, you know, we're sharing stories, doing the thing. And eventually enough time passes and I say, hey, look, so, so, you know, you check, check the things you wanted to hang out and talk. Like I'm, I'm cool just getting to know each other or whatever. That's fine. But like, was there anything specific that you wanted to talk about. And what they said was something I've heard over and over again. And looking at this guy and he says, look, I've been around church a long time. I've heard people try to explain what all this is about a bunch of different ways. I just don't get it. I don't get it. And I was so thankful for the, like the boldness of that statement. But somebody show up and say, look, I got all these pieces floating around. I got a bunch of Bible stories when I was a kid. I've been, you know, I got all this stuff. I don't get it. I don't, have, I don't understand how all this stuff fits together. Like, what is the, what is the main idea? Like, what is, what is the truth that you guys are trying to get across? I don't get it. That's what Nicodemus is saying. Look, how can all this stuff be? How in the world are you supposed to do this on your own? That's an incredible question. So Jesus answers with first a little bit of frustration. Verse 10, Jesus answered him and said, listen, are, you're the teacher of Israel? You're one of the key teachers of all these, these people. Like you're supposed to be pointing all these people to the father. And he says, and yet you don't understand these things. I think Jesus is frustrated for, for his people at that point and saying like, if you're teaching some other kind of thing, if you're teaching some sort of legalism, like how do you not get this? You're supposed to be a teacher of Israel. Verse 11, he says, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you guys aren't receiving our, our testimony. I said, listen, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you? heavenly things. 
You can feel the, the shock and even like this frustration in Jesus at this. But I don't think it's at Nicodemus personally. I don't think he's like upset and angry with Nicodemus. I think Jesus is frustrated with the worldview that elevated his empty morality. Because that was the, the worldview of the time. A bunch of people had this worldview where they just had a bunch of rules and they had a bunch of morality and it was all about being a good person. And it was at the expense of actual faith. And so there's all this teaching that was going around that was about being a good person, doing what was right, depending on who told you what was right. And none of that had anything to do with putting your faith in the Lord. And it's like trusting on him and leaning on him and relying on him. It was all about them, what they could do. And that's what I think about that. Was this our, our culture and our worldview? It's not that different. A lot of us, a lot of times if you, if you listen to the kind of the narrative of our culture, a lot of what you hear is, is what John Ortberg calls this secular salvation schema, which you don't need to know what that means. It's just a fun term for me. All right. Basically, it's this idea that we've found, we found salvation in ourselves, that, that true actualization, like true meaning and purpose and um, value, like all of that is, is somewhere hidden deep inside of each one of us. And if we work hard enough and if we deal with all this like oppression or like whatever else would be over and like suppressing that, that if we dig deep enough, we can find our true selves and our true, basically release and freedom and salvation somewhere inside of us. It was hidden there all along. And so in, in us, like if we, if we deal with this stuff, like I, 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 we get to define um, what's good. And if we live by what we define as good, then we're living like out our best lives. We're like being, we're living this self-actualization and like there's some salvation in that. It also teaches basically that if, if I can, if I can better myself enough, I can reach a state of, of like true goodness. Like I can be actually good. Like I can basically attain my own little version of holiness by living out the life that I am intended to live based off my priorities and, and my desires. If I live out my truth, I'm going to hit a point. It's essentially salvation. That's the promise. So that's what our world promise is. If you get to live out your truth, if you get to do your thing, and you've like shed off all this stuff and find the self-actualization inside you, you're going to come to this point of self-actualization that is very similar to a kind of a view of salvation that we see in Scripture. But all of it's built on me. All of it's built on my work. All of it's built on my morality and my effort. I'm just going to tell you, like, I can't get up at five o'clock in the morning to save my life, all right? Like, and if, if my salvation is built on my effort and me following my morality so I can attain my version of holiness and I can like achieve this, this higher state because I've done these things, well, I don't have much of a hope of doing that. And neither do you. I think there's a lot of people on the internet that act like they've got it all figured out and they've arrived and they've sorted all this stuff out and they get to live these awesome little holy lives on Instagram. But I'm telling you, like, I, don't, I haven't met a single one of them yet. Somebody who's actually found freedom, has actually found hope, found purpose and value in themselves. I haven't met that person yet. Met a lot of people faking it, but haven't actually found it. So Nicodemus is, is, is struggling here because his worldview is being flipped. Jesus is struggling because he's, he's listening to one of the teachers of Israel basically explain that he has no concept of what faith looks like. And he's stuck in this self-righteousness. And so Jesus finally, in verse 13, he, he gets around and he explains, starts explaining this true and better way. Why he actually came, what actually matters for us. Verse 13 says this, says, No one has ascended into heaven 
except he who's descended from heaven, the son of God. He's listening like, nobody's holy but me. It's like, Nicodemus, you don't have it all together. None of y'all have it together. It's like, nobody's done this except me. And then begins to explain why the son of man had to come. Verse 14, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that whoever would just believe in him may have eternal life. He's looking at Nicodemus. This guy would have had the first five books, at least of the Bible memorized, uh, the, the Old Testament. Probably had the entire of the Old Testament memorized. And so he, he starts telling him this, like referencing the story in Numbers 21. You probably don't have the first five books of the Bible memorized. So in Numbers chapter 21, there's this story of the people of God rebelling against God. And so they're actively in rebellion. And so God sends judgment through the, the camp of Israel in the form of these deadly snakes. But he also provides the means for them to be saved from the punishment for their sin. They, they, they've sinned, they've rebelled against God. And so he's sent judgment through the camp. There's deadly snakes like going through the camp. But God in his goodness, in his love, also sends a way for them to be saved from the judgment from their sin. He's judge and justifier. He told Moses to make this bronze snake and put it on this stick and hold it up really high. And he said, if anybody would just, if anybody has the faith enough, to just look at what I'm holding up on the stick right here. If you have faith enough just to look, you'll be saved. It's not anything you got to do. There's no behavior. You don't have to like do a special dance or something. You don't have to like pay penance or something. It's just like, just look, just put your faith in it. Like just, I'm holding it up. If you'll put your, just trust him. He'll just forgive you. It's just free. I know it sounds crazy, but I know we've rebelled, but if you just, if you just look on this, it'll set you free. It'll forgive you. It'll, it'll take away the judgment. God is both judge and justifier. So Jesus is saying that God's doing that same thing again. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, he's looking at Nicodemus saying, look, this exact same thing is still happening. God still wants to be just. He's still the judge of our sin, but he also wants to be justifier. So I'm going to have to be lifted up just like that bronze snake that anybody who would just believe in me is going to have eternal life. Why would God do that? Why would he go to such length to make a way for sinful, rebellious people to be saved? Why would God not just let them get what they deserve? Let you get what you deserve. Why didn't he just wash his hands of us? Every single one of us on our own is consistently and repeatedly walking away. Even after we come to trust him as savior and acknowledge that, we still slip back on our own ways and our own pride and our own self-righteousness. Why, doesn't he just, why didn't he just wash his hands? That would have been fair. If he's the righteous judge, why didn't he just let the judgment stand? Why did he also go to such great lengths to become our justifier? Why would God do that for you? This is one simple word. This is the one we're talking about today. It's just love. So the next verse, with that ringing in our ears, why would he do this? Verse 16 answers the question. This is why. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world so deeply, unequivocally, unconditionally loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God chose to lift up his son in our place, offered us this, this grace, this gift, this motivated by his love that if we would look to the son, if we would believe on the son, all of that sin, all of that shame, all of that brokenness would be taken away, paid for on the cross. That whosoever would look to him, believe on him, trust on him, wouldn't remain under judgment anymore, would be rescued. That's a beautiful thing. 
But it's a thing that I consistently, I consistently forget sometimes. Not like, not cognitively, but in the way I'm behaving, I find myself sifting away from just trusting and resting and relying on just this love of God he's poured out over me and just living thankful for what he's done. All of a sudden, I start putting rules and procedures and expectations, honestly, on myself. The way I need to be good. I need to handle some stuff. I need to rise to the occasion. When all he's asked me to do is look to him and live thankfully. Jesus continues the the passage. He says, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I know we talk about John 3, 16 a lot. I think we should talk about John 3, 17 a lot. Because I think, I think this is how, I think this is the one, a lot of us in our our culture, our world, we need to hear that because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think I I talked to a lot of people, um, Christians or not, who, who kind of imagine God like angry Santa like Hulk out Santa, you know, if Santa was a whole lot less jolly and didn't have the rosy cheeks and just had angry eyes, like that's how we kind of imagine God, this like angry old man in the sky somewhere who's just watching and waiting to punish you, right? Like take the gift away, take the goodness away. He's gonna, he's gonna punish you for your sin by removing goodness and giving back struggle. He's this angry old man up in the sky and he's got some kind of crazy robe on or something and he's just waiting to take you down. Verse 17, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He is a grace-filled, loving, merciful, kind king who loves you perfectly to the extent to which he was willing to become not only just, not only the judge, but also the justifier by laying down the life of the son for you. It's an incredibly overwhelming love. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the only son of God. I think most of the world, uh, most of us, even some professing Christians, we try to find our salvation in ourselves sometimes. Like by doing enough on our own that we can work our way towards this end to, that God's going to be happy with us. Or at least he's not going to be so angry with us anymore that we can kind of placate this anger that we imagine that God has towards us by, just, by our morality and our goodness. And then we end up slipping sometimes into finding our salvation in someone that we imagine to be kinder and more grace-filled than the Father, and that's ourselves. Like, I can find my salvation in me. If I, my, it's, it's in here somewhere, if I can just get down to it. And Jesus walks up to a guy with this theology that's upside down, this worldview that's been flipped, came out of a culture that was really legalistic, and he just speaks this love and grace over him and says, listen, man, all you need to do is just look to the sun. The one that was lifted up for you, just, just, just trust on him. Like, this is Jesus. He's like, just trust in me. That's what he would be saying to you this morning. So if you're not a Christian this morning, our band's going to come. They're going to lead us in time to worship. But if you're not a Christian this morning, that's all I wanted to remind you of. That this great love that God has for you was shown by, by Jesus willingly giving his life. On that cross in your place, that was that act of love. That's how he showed his love for us. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you are a Christian in the room, I, I'm imagining that you're a lot like me. That you know that. Like you've internalized John 3.16, but man, sometimes walking that out, you'll find hints of that legalism creeping back in, those old habits sneaking back around you. And I just wanted you to have a moment just to be reminded of the unending, never-failing, unequivocal love of God. And just to rest in that. Just to be reminded that he hasn't asked anything of you in return. He's done all of it for you. He's laid down his life already. He's just invited you just to look to the one who has lifted up. 
So why don't you take a moment, and I just want to give you a second just to think and pray on your own. So if you're a believer, if you're a Christian in the room already, I just want you to get to have a conversation with the Lord about that love. Just like the Spirit reminds you of that great love that he has for you. And just talk to God about that. Praise him for that. Thank him for that. Let him do a work in you all over again right now. Remind you of the love that saved you, that sets you free. And if you're not a Christian in the room yet, um, I, I want you to evaluate, maybe just on, on your own heart and mind, you know, what's your, what's your trust again? Where are you trusting in to find hope, find value, find security, find rest? So the thing that you're trusting in honestly is yourself. You know as well as I do how that's going to work out. I've been there. And I came to a point where I realized I couldn't do it and I needed to be rescued. I needed a savior. I didn't need to try harder. So I'm praying this morning that God would do a work in you right now to draw you to himself for you to look to the one who was lifted up for you. You can continue to pray on your own, worship as you need to. But I just want to get to pray over you. And I want to remind you that we got some folks in the back who would love to be praying with you. They're going to be back there on the left side over there. And if you just want somebody to talk with, somebody to pray with, they're there for you. So as our band leads in just a minute, you can slide back there and spend some time with them. But as you continue to pray, as you continue to think on your own, let me, let me pray over you. Father, um, this morning I'm just incredibly grateful for your love for loving somebody like, like me. And God, I confess that consistently I, I will find myself um, falling back into some old habits and expecting, I think, maybe more out of myself than you do. Relying on myself more than you. And I think a lot of us in the room are in that same boat. And so God, we confess that this morning. Remind us of the goodness and the grandeur and the endlessness of your love and help us to lean back into your loving arms. For my friends in the room who haven't trusted you as Savior or still have questions, God, I pray. I pray that just by your spirit that you would give them the, the boldness to evaluate what they're leaning into, what they're trusting in, what they're hoping in, and to address the validity of that. God, I pray that you draw them to something better. I pray that you draw them to yourself. God, thank you for loving us enough to send your son for us. Send your sons on your prayer. Amen. When you're ready, why don't you stand with us and worship?